Good morning. Good morning, Rabutai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class today is uh, dedicated, and the entire week of learning is dedicated for the Torah Center Diamond Donors in honor of Michael and Elizabeth Dishi, and in celebration of the birth of their twin boys, Hazaku Baruch, very, very special. Also dedicated this week, uh, Breakfast in the Class dedicated in loving memory and Lilian Ken Carey's mother, Grace Carey, Adash Shalom, by Ken and Lillian Carey. Uh, also dedicated for the week in loving memory, Lulu Nishmat, Avraham Ben Yehezkel Vezolaycha, sponsored by Judy and Maurice Chosh. For the Refuah Shilema of Eliyahu Shumon Ben Mazal Fortuneh, and Chanabat Simafega. Also, the entire week is dedicated and sponsored by David E. Ash in honor of you and your substantial capacity to good today and every day. My friends, I wanted to draw your attention to something that I found uh, very interesting. Uh, the Sfarim point out, please only say amen if you're listening to this live. Baruch Atah Adonai. Elohim Melech Adam Shachon Yavaroh. That there is a universal level of learning that we have to be able to pull out from every situation, from every teaching in the Torah. So what does that mean? You'll see a piece of Torah. The Torah is talking about a hyper-specific uh, you know, contextual story. And the job of a serious student of Torah is to recognize that the same way um, when we read about the stories of the Avot, those stories are designed to teach you universal lessons. And they're not just relating the history of the Avot family. It's not just telling you about how they struggle to have children, but we're learning lessons about how a person prays for something when they're waiting for it for a very, very long time. That might be relevant to someone who had children without even trying to have children, okay? So the message of tefillah, be'et tzarah, praying in a difficult time, uh, praying together with your wife for something, right? That it says that he prayed, le'nochach ishto, opposite his wife, ki akarahi. The message is not only reserved for a person who can't have children, it's also for every person that's praying for something and waiting for something for many years to come to fruition. So it is in the application of the teachings of the Torah where the Torah is given its widest possible point of impact. Now if that's clear, then we start to understand many lessons that are drawn from hyper-individual uh, characterizations in the Torah and we are able to draw not only inspiration, but lessons for life and, uh, and um, modalities of Kiddushah that we can institute in our life experience. So, let's take one such example. The first laws that are set down post-Luchot, mishpatim, begin seemingly with a strange mitzvah. Like, if you were writing the Torah, and my rabbi used to do this sometimes with us as an exercise, just as a thought exercise. He would ask us, let's say you were God. The title of a great book by Rabbi Arya Kaplan. Let's say you were God. Is this how you would written the book? Like, I'll give you an example. Let's look at the Luchot. It is obvious, I feel, to anyone that the first mitzvah in the Luchot would have to be Believe in God, right? Because the, the idea of following in God's commandments or listening to the Torah is obviously 
predicated on the fact that you believe in him. In fact, there's a machloket, a disagreement amongst the Rishonim, the commentators, as to whether or not that first commandment is a mitzvah, anochi. I am Hashem your God. Belief in God. Is that a commandment or not? Obviously, many people believe. What do you mean? It's the first commandment of the, of the, of the Ten Commandments. It's called the Ten Commandments. That should give it away. <laughs> right? Ironically, only in Judaism, uh, when we follow Lashon Kodesh, you'll find out that Dibrot don't actually mean commandments. Okay? It means statements. The Ten Statements. One of the opinions is, it may, the opinions of the Rishonim says it's not a, it's not a commandment uh, in the Torah. You know why? Because you can't mandate belief in God. You either believe in Him or you don't believe in Him. If you're a person who believes in Him, you don't need to be commanded. And if you're a person who doesn't believe in Him, being commanded by someone you don't believe in to believe in Him is obviously a non-starter. So it's a fascinating machloket in the Mifarshim. And the other opinion, the second opinion, obviously, uh, is looking at it in a very logical way. But the first opinion will say that there are many things that we do in this life that are commandments. And you had to command people to do them. Because even if you did it, that might be done out of preference. Not out of chiyuv, not out of obligation. Okay? So we're given the opportunity to start. Now, that sounds to me pretty logical. You know, I'm about to tell you about my mitzvot, first and foremost, do you believe in God? Okay, don't have other gods, because that's obviously going to mess up the commandment thing. Okay? That makes sense to me. I understand that you're going to put down the, you know, the concrete pillars upon which the world is built on. As an example, Shabbat, that's in there. Big one. Honoring your parents. Big one. You know why it's a big one? Because who teaches you to follow in the ways of the Torah? Who hands down the Torah from generation to generation? Especially in a time before the Torah were, uh, the oral Torah was not written down. The vast majority of the Torah was being communicated generation to generation. So you had to put in the Luchot, Kaber Avich, honor your parents. You had to put that down. You had to have Shabbat. Don't kill. That sounds pretty, you know, essential. Don't steal. Essential. Now you're going to tell me you're going to start the Mishpatim with what? Let me just give you a quick breakdown of the laws of a Hebrew slave. Is this, is this so, like, this is it? So I heard once someone say, they said, Rabbi, you're looking at it through your perspective. A modern person living in America, 2024, it might not be all that relevant how you treat a Jewish slave. But to slaves that just came out of Egypt, it was highly relevant. And not only that, probably top of mind, like the English say. I, I'll accept that. I like that. But to me, that's not enough. I think there's more here. We can mine for more. So let me share with you an idea that I think is really powerful. Torah communicates that when a person is a Jewish slave, and by the way, how do you have a Jewish slave? How'd that happen? How'd you get a Jewish slave? Sorry? The guy had unpaid debts. He needed to, you know, there used to be a thing back in the day. You'd have people couldn't afford to go out to eat. They'd go to a restaurant because they were hungry. They would sit there, right? They would, what's it called? At the end of it, they couldn't pay. What would the guy do? Grab him by his uh, shirt, take him into the kitchen, 
Wash the dishes. Right? Wash the dishes. So this is the effective, this is effectively the longer term version of wash the dishes. You owe money, you can't not pay it back. Go work as a slave. By the way, this is crazy. And now how long would he work for? Anyone know? Until the debts were paid. Until the debts were paid. You weren't a slave because you were a slave. You were, it was until the debts were paid. So he's not really a slave, right? We're, we're in over here, he's not really a slave because you can't treat him badly. You have to treat him as good as you treat yourself. The Talmud says, you acquire a Hebrew slave, you acquire a master. Hey, I always imagine the Hebrew slave, he's in the house one day, he's like, maybe we should move the couches. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the wife makes dinner. I don't know what you do. You think, really? You want to do that for dinner? Maybe, maybe we should have more of protein. I don't know. Right? So Kadan says the Gemara that if you have two pillows, you give him one. If you have one pillow, he gets it. Not really a slave. Eved Ivri. So why are we calling him an Eved, this guy? We should call him a Hebrew master. If you're telling me, Kana Eved Ivri, Kana Adon Laatzmo. Call him a Hebrew master. Chazal tells something incredible. He say, you know why he's called Eved Ivri? He's called Eved Ivri because end of the day, what he does in that day is down to you. Now it's true. You can't mistreat him. You actually have to treat him pretty darn good. His life with you, I mean, I'm guessing, the guy can't afford anything. He has unpaid debts. And you have to give him your first pillow. He's probably doing better off now than he did when he had unpaid debts. Or the other version is that he stole something and he needs to pay back and he can't pay it back. Okay? So the guy's a thief, needs to steal to eat. Now he's eating your steak if you have one steak. He's doing pretty good. Still called an Eved. Because when, he, when a person is not the master of their own destiny, they can't chart their own course. They can't decide what they are doing today. That decision is not their decision. That person is called an Eved. Says the Pasuk, after six years, even in a scenario, you know, where it's a difficult situation, after six years are over, the guy comes in the seventh year, he goes free. Can't have him for more than that amount of time. Now, how about if the guy says, but I, you know what? I love my master, which is really my slave. <laughs> I love Mr. Pillow Steak Guy, right? This guy's amazing. Never asked me to clean the toilets. He's not allowed to. Tie his shoes. He's not allowed to. Any menial labor. labor. You can't ask this guy. Right? I don't do windows. I had that, right? Listen to this, because to me it's amazing. At the end of seven years, we tell him, go, freedom. What does the guy say? I love my master. Ahafti et ishti. I love my servant wife. Has a wife who's also a slave. The children of that union and born from a, a, a real Eved, those kids don't leave with him. They stay there as workers forever or until the, the master decides to free them. It's a disaster. The guy says, I love my master. I love this life. I want to stay here. What's the halacha? Very interesting uh, response. We take the guy, the, the, uh, the, the Eved, you bring him to the door, 
and you give him a, an earring. I don't know which side, because I know that's a big deal, which side the earring is on. <laughs> I've heard that that is highly relevant on the streets, okay? But you give him a, an earring in one side. And not only that, by the way, who has to administer this? Uh, he doesn't get it at Mammoth Mall, the ear piercing, one of those kiosks. The master takes him, he brings him to the doorpost. He brings him to the doorpost, right? To the door and to the doorpost. And then he gives, he gives him a little ear, he gives him piercing his ear. And then he could stay with him until Yovel, until the Yovel year. So people always think it means they'll serve him forever. It doesn't mean that. How long will he serve him for? Until the Jubilee year. How long is that? Well, it depends what year you're in. It might only be one more year. It might be 43 more years, depending on where he's up to. Okay? But in that scenario, and by the way, I don't know if people know this, at any point in this uh, weird work relationship, he can buy his way out. Did you know that? So if there's an unpaid debt, and then he works, and he pays the master the amount of money that he owes it. He can walk away. He's just working off of debt. That's the real nikuda. So listen, and this is where it gets to me. It really got to me. Says the Mefarshim, listen to this. So why do we do this whole ear piercing thing? What is this? What are we learning about over here? We're learning about the fact that this fellow did not listen carefully enough. That's why the ear needs to be pierced. You know, I, I don't know if you're... Uh, if you're, you know, they say rabbis, everybody should be in shape. But rabbis are also in shape because round is a shape. Okay? You know, now, what's it called? Everybody's got to be in shape. Now, a lot of times you go running, you play basketball, you feel really good. You did that workout. I work out once, twice a year. Right? You work out, you know, however long you often you work out. Right? But then someone's like, oh my gosh, you have to try this. You ever have someone, you ever have that friend who tries every weird exercise type thing? and is absolutely sold that this is the best thing, this is the best diet, this is the best superfood, this is the best drink, this is the best nutritional supplement, and they are excited about it for an entire week. You know those guys? Anyway, so the guy tells me, Rabbi, this treadmill, no, don't do that, don't do that. Running is not a good exercise. I was like, I think it's kind of been one of those <laughs> exercises that has hung around for millennia, I kind of feel like that's a thing. Pickleball, I think, has a limited shelf life. But other things, right, you know, they've been around for quite some time. I kind of think running is here to stay, right? The guy said, no, no, you don't want to do that. You want to do this machine. Has anyone here ever been on an elliptical machine? Human beings were not designed to do the motions that go along with an elliptical machine. I don't know, I just felt like my legs were being ripped out of their sockets. I felt like in some parallel universe, right, dishes were getting washed. Or, or spaghetti was being spun. I don't know what was being at, right? But this was not a thing that I should be doing. It was weird. And I get, you get off and you're like, oh, okay, I'm out of breath, which is the universal sign that exercise is working. Other things you're not sure, right? It's very diff easy to know if exercise is working. You're sweating, you can't breathe, right? So I'm doing the thing, I get off. And the next morning, I became acutely aware that I was the proud owner of muscles that I did not know that I owned. When you work out something that you have never visited before, right, your muscles are likely to ring the bell and say, what are you doing? <laughs> You're 45 years old. You know, I have not had to work all this time, and I am not about to start. Right? That was the clear message that was being sent by muscles that I did not know existed, okay? So, 
What, do you happen? what happens when you finally realize the muscle exists? It hurts. What are we doing when we're piercing the ear of the Eved? We're making him become aware of his ear. That's the Nikuda. There's something here you're not using. Your ear. You didn't hear something. At Har Sinai, I said, that the Am Yisrael is going to be servants to me, subservient to me, listening to me. I didn't ask them, I didn't take them out from being servants to Paro, so they should become servants to another human being. Human beings were designed to serve only Hashem. Now, you didn't hear that. You're not listening. I want you to start listening. Fascinating, says the Kliakar. Why do we do it at the Delet? Or El HaMizuzah? By the way, I know if you're at the Delet, you're at the Mizuzah, right? By definition. The Delet goes in the Mizuzah. It's a door frame. Says the Kliakar. Because what did the guy say that made him stay? I love... My master, I love my wife. And what does it say in the mezuzah? You were supposed to love me. This is what you love. You were supposed to love serving me. With your money, right? With your soul, with your heart. And this is what you love instead. You didn't listen. You didn't hear. It's a wake-up call. That, that this is what he's kind of has to take he needs to kind of fix my friends the reason why I'm sharing this is because we're being told is that when you love doing anything but the service of God that is the opposite of the service of God you want to know what it means that we're calling this guy an Eved the Eved means you know what Eved means Eved means a person who cannot make the decisions that the Torah wants him to make if you serve anyone other than the destiny that you were supposed to serve, you're an Evid. Say the commentators, if you're an Evid of a master and his name is David Cohen, okay, Torah doesn't like that. But truth be told, what makes you an Evid is that you're listening to him. That now you have to marry this Isha, you know, Shifcha Kena'anit. That now you have to do all this work in the day that otherwise you would have been working for yourself. My friends, say the Sifre Musar, a person does not need a physical master to become an Evid Ivri, a Hebrew slave. There are many things that a person can become a slave to. And I want to share with you a fascinating example of this in a study that they did many years ago. They analyzed the brain of coke addicts. I do not mean the drink. <clears throat> they analyzed the brain of coke addicts. And they noticed that there was a disproportionate amount or ratio between gray matter and white matter in their brain. And that was based on the fact that there was this dependency on and this uh, chemical, I don't want to call it an imbalance because uh, a psychiatrist told me that they have since moved away from the theory of chemical imbalance. I don't know, I'm sure I'll get angry emails for and against on this one. You know, obviously some people for cocaine, some people against, no, right? So what's the goal? They analyze the brain and they see this. And they're like, okay, it makes sense, even if it's not a chemical imbalance, but you're literally taking something which is impacting your brain. That's what cocaine does. It, according to everybody, 
it changes the release of serotonin, of dopamine in the brain, the hit that the person is getting, the euphoric state, etc., 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 that the person is getting when they, when they take drugs. Then, they analyze the brain of alcohol addicts, of severe alcoholics. Now, it is important to note, and I would like to just give a public shout-out to SAFE for driving this home, bringing this to our attention. You know, there's stigmatic differences between being a drug addict and between being an alcoholic. But the differences between them are only stigmatic. O- almost no other difference. The, the ruin of your life, the inability to walk away, the difficulty even after a person has walked away to stay on the wagon, is the same. And, and I promise you, no one starts off being blackout drunk on a sidewalk. And, and, and with people who have obsessive type personalities, you have to be very careful. You want to have a drink, everything in moderation, beautiful, great. Enjoy a scotch, enjoy a, whatever you want to enjoy, fantastic. A red wine, I don't care, whatever you want, great. But, but in, in, in moderation. If a person is losing themselves again and again and again, in the cloud of alcohol, and it started with Shabbat drinking and the thing and the Kiddush or Friday night, and then it's in the Sebet, and then next thing you know, it's in the Mazah before Shabbat. Two minutes after, you know, the guy starts sliding down this sliding bond. The guy's drinking every day of the week. He doesn't come home from work without having something to take the edge off every day. And before you know it, the guy's a raging alcoholic. And his wife and his business and his children and his own life suffering. Be, be, be very aware that you can become an Eved to alcohol. And it's very difficult to get away. Because what do you say? I love my master. Think about that for a minute. A guy might know that drugs are killing him in his relationships and his business and his everything. A guy might know that at the bottom of the bottle is a destruction of his marriage and his children's lives and his financial stability. And he does it anyway. Why does he do it? You can check in anytime you like, but you can never leave. Welcome to the Hotel California. You can check in whenever you like, but can you leave? The Evid is being given this choice. You come to the doorway. You're right you're, right, you're at the, at the uh, precipice of freedom. Can you walk out the door or can you never leave? So they did this test on the brain of an alcoholic. By the way, by the way, same brain scan as the brain scan of the cocaine addict was the alcohol addict. I just understand that if you're a little bit too loose with the way you have alcohol. I would never do that. I would never do that. You are doing that. But then it got even more interesting. Because the same brain scan that they found for the cocaine addict and for the they found for the gambling addict. And they found for the intimacy addict. And they found for the social media addict. Effectively, what was the Tzad Hashaveh, the the common denominator? The common denominator was addiction is addiction is addiction is addiction. And my friends, at that point, 
The person relinquishes control over their own decisions. They can no longer decide for themselves. That is the concept of Eved Divri. And the Torah over here, before we started with Judaism, is asking us this question. Every Jew out there, every Jew at the foot of Mount Sinai, I'm about, I am going to commence giving you this mission should you choose to accept it in a way that's going to change your life for the better. Understand, there's one caveat which makes none of this work, and that is when you allow yourself to be owned by, to be governed by another master but me. And that master could be drugs, it could be an Eved Ivri, it could be alcohol, it could be desire, it could be women, it could be, it could be money, it could be greed, it could be power, it could be honor. You have people who will literally kamikaze their business because they can't ask for help because they're too proud to ask for help. And the short-sightedness of that is unbelievable because you're going to get to a point where not only you're going to need to ask for help, you're going to need to ask for help and you're going to be even more humiliated because you waited until everything exploded or imploded. Right? But let me push it off. Let me kick the can down the road. I'll change tomorrow. So the question is, who or what are you serving? That question, I think, is the very first question we ask after Sinai. Because a slave that was freed also may still be a slave. You know, the phrase goes, hurt people, hurt people. Ever heard that before? Jew, you were just left leaving Egypt. You were a slave. Now you're free. But there's elements that come with you in the suitcase. Like, you know, someone once stuck it to you. I don't know if you remember this, when you were in high school, in ninth grade, and they kind of pick on the freshies. Remember that? They bully the freshies. So what happens when you get into 10th grade and the new ninth graders come? You bully the ninth graders. <laughs> Did it to me. <laughs> This is the initiation, hazing, let's go. If it was done to me, I'm gonna do it to someone else. That means that even though you're free from your Egyptian master, you have not walked away from the effects that slavery has had on you. You're still bitter, you're still angry, you are serving the master called bitterness. Cynicism, anger. I'm gonna stick it to the next person. That's how the business world works. The faster you learn that, as if someone died and appointed you their teacher. <laughs> My friends, that to me is this, the beauty of this lesson. And I think that in some ways, what we're being taught over here, when we look at this Eve Divri, who could be a slave to anything, is to recognize that the way out, what is the way out? The ear that heard at Mount Sinai, Kili now is hearing this. And I'll share with you something that I thought was very interesting. One of the most fascinating phenomenon that I've ever had the, uh, the occasion to study is something called Stockholm Syndrome. And in Stockholm Syndrome, um, the, the, the predominant message is that when they would take these people, they would kidnap them, they would have them, you know, in the, in the original case, which was in a bank in Stockholm, that's why it's called that. They had all these people locked up in a safe, hostage situation, okay? And 
while the hostage situation is happening, so obviously you got to feed the hostages, right? So they're feeding the hostages. There was one woman, they strapped explosives to her body when she asked if she could go to the bathroom in the bank. Okay? The woman goes to the bank, but they, they gave them food, they took care of them, because that's, that's what they are, they're hostages. And what happened after the whole story? They were warning them that the police were coming. They were the lookouts for them to tell them that the people coming to save them were coming. What's even more crazy is that after the hostage situation was over, the hostages themselves put money together to help pay for the legal defense of the kidnappers. And that was when they started studying this. How is it that the hostage starts to develop feelings of sympathy and empathy with the kidnapper? You don't know what I've been going through, that I have to do this. And because they're being taken care of, they start feeling, oh, this person's my protector. And there's lots of logic as to why this begins to take over a person's mind and start to feel that, not that this is the villain, but that this is the hero. And let me share with you one thing. They noticed that there was one condition that if it's not met, Stockholm Syndrome never takes hold. Very interesting. So in other words, in this bubble, and by the way, I have no doubt this is happening right now in Gaza. This is not something you choose to happen to you. Every day the guy brings you a sandwich, you're starving otherwise, eventually you feel like, oh, he's not as bad as the other ones. Look, I, I think, you know, he's probably being forced to do this. You start to develop these thoughts in a place where you have no control, We have no one on your side. This person's like seemingly more on my side. You cling to hope. There's one thing that made people never have Stockholm Syndrome. By the way, the same element, everyone thinks it's only about kidnap. It's the same psychological impetus of battered wife syndrome. Same thing. What was the one thing that would break Stockholm Syndrome? Anyone know? Nope. I mean, maybe, I don't know. It's not the one that I read. They noticed proximity. What do you mean proximity? Well, yes, it requires proximity. Listen to this. They need to not have any form of contact with the outside world. Because in constructing this narrative of this person is so nice to me, you need to accept that I'm here. If you could think for one second, you're having your conversation with your best friend and your family, you're thinking to yourself, this guy who's giving me a sandwich is also locking me in here. You're able to recognize that he's not a good friend, he's actually a kidnapper. So, so long as they had any form of contact with the outside world, that would break the effect of Stockholm Syndrome. Every Yetzirah addiction is a form of Stockholm Syndrome. I love the bottle. You know why? Because in this narrative, the bottle is giving me what I want. Escape from feelings of pain. But what you're not remembering is that it's locking you in the vault. How do you get that? Says the pasuk. Take him to the doorway. Remind him what he heard before he started all this. You are servants to me and to no one and to nothing else. Reminding sometimes a person of that freedom, helping to make it real, taking him to the doorpost is the greatest gift you could give to someone who's stuck, but also to ourselves as well. You think you can't beat a Yetzirah? Go meet someone 
who beat that Yetzirah. You're struggling with a certain problem? Find support in, the, in someone who has managed to defeat it. Understand that there was a person, you, before this, who didn't have this problem. That, mean, that means that there is a possible you that exists without this issue. And if you can get yourself to see, to feel, to touch that outside freedom, then suddenly any of the good things that I'm getting from this addiction fade away and become clear to be the kidnapper, the hostage taker that they actually are. Do you want to be free? Baruch